Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Did we ignore the warning signs? Did we ignore the maintenance of our rivers and the dike system in our province? Well, there's a new report out that shows the B.C. government was warned more than a decade ago that staffing levels at the River Forecast Centre were far below what you would see at a similar operation in, say, Oregon or Alberta. And that is one of the critical ways that we monitor river levels in this province and let people know if there's going to be a problem. Let's find out more about this report now. So joining us is Ben Parfit, who's a policy analyst at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, Simi. Okay, tell me about this report. What did we find? Uh, well, uh, the report um, is, is forms part of a longer report that uh, uh, the CCPA is releasing today. So the, the reporting question uh, that you talked about off the top uh, was produced by a former top uh, civil servant in the provincial government uh, and delivered to the provincial government in 2010. Uh, and that report um, explicitly uh, said that the staffing levels at the River Forecast Centre, which is the critical frontline uh, agency uh, tasked with providing both timely and accurate warnings, uh, his uh, view was that the staffing levels of uh, 5.5 people in that centre were uh, insufficient, completely insufficient to do uh, an effective job. Um, and in fact, in his view, needed to be more than doubled. Okay, that was 10 years ago. Did anything happen since then? Uh, no, in fact, the staffing levels today remain uh, exactly uh, as they were uh, then. And I think, you know, the, the challenging thing here is that obviously we've seen uh, tremendous uh, damage uh, associated uh, with these um, uh, floods. Um, and the question is, you know, could there have been um, more um, uh, timely and more accurate um, warnings about what was to come? Uh, and the report that we've released today um, um, quotes extensively from a former head of the River Forecast Center that feels both the timeliness and the accuracy of the warnings provided were completely insufficient. And so how was this treated in other jurisdictions, Ben? I know that was mentioned like in Oregon and Alberta, their staffing levels are higher. So what are they doing that we are not? Well, you know, if we look at the events leading up to the uh, flooding um, in Abbotsford, Princeton and Merritt, um, it is very clear from what was happening in the United States um, that uh, forecast information was being generated well before um, the events, which led uh, our counterparts in the U.S. Pacific Northwest, uh, based out of uh, Portland, uh, to be issuing um, warnings far earlier than uh, we did in British Columbia. In fact, days earlier. 
Um, and in the view of the former um, head of the River Forecast Center that uh, I interviewed for today's uh, report, um, you know, his feeling was um, that information clearly was available to the River Forecast Center uh, people here uh, from America showing that an unprecedented event was essentially um, moving our way, that extremely heavy rains were moving our way. And in his view, uh, that was sufficient information um, for the River Forecast Center here to be issuing uh, warnings far earlier than right. it did. Ben, do you think, did we take the system for granted I mean, it had protected us for floods for, for so many years. Did we just assume that would always be the case, do you think? Well, I, I, I can't speak to that. What, what I can speak to is that the, in the view of the former water controller of the province um, who, who delivered this report to the government in 2010, um, the staffing levels were not sufficient. And in addition to that, he... Uh, told the provincial government very clearly that uh, he had concerns about the models that were being used by the River Forecast Centre 10 years ago, um, and that much more work needed to be done to beef things up, in particular uh, because of concerns about climate change, uh, you know, that we would be getting not only uh, potentially more uh, flood events uh, in future years, but that they could be more uh, severe. So it looks like the information that was provided to the government um, was not acted on, uh, and we do not have the capacity that we should have uh, at this critical frontline agency to provide both timely and uh, accurate warnings about what lies ahead. And I think that's a really, really important thing because it's really the River Forecast Center that provides that critical early warning, which in turn um, puts in motion um, Emergency Management BC. And Emergency Management BC is supposed to be uh, working uh, and coordinating um, with vulnerable communities. So it's really, really important that that frontline agency, uh, the River Forecast Centre, is able to produce those early um, warnings, those accurate warnings, because that serves as the basis for an effective emergency response. Are we learning our lesson, though? Like, Ben, when you see what's happening now, people are speaking up. I know, you know, different organizations, different regional districts are speaking up saying, hey, we tried to get help for this and we couldn't get help for this. Do you think things will change? Well, you know, my, <laughs> I think my hope and the hope of, of many, many British Columbians uh, is that it, it will um, because what we've seen unfold uh, over the last few weeks, obviously, uh, is, is extremely troubling uh, and devastating for communities. Um, there is a need, I think, to, to seriously rethink um, how we are approaching uh, flood risk. I think it begins, obviously, with, with um, frontline agencies being properly staffed and able to uh, operate effectively. But I think it extends well beyond that. And I think what we're starting to see um, is, you know, some pretty um, serious thinking about the wisdom, for example, of the provincial government uh, offloading responsibility for dikes onto um, municipal and regional authorities that are not capable of, of doing that work. Uh, you know, what we need is, is strong, coordinated leadership uh, from the provincial government 
uh, on serious uh, issues like uh, dike infrastructure and what needs to be done to ensure that dike infrastructure is is uh, better in this province. So, given this report that has just out this morning, uh, what do you think? What should we take away from that? What should the public? What's the number one thing we should take from this? Well, the number one thing I think we should take is that we need to have adequately staffed um, uh, uh, provincial agencies um, that provide those uh, critical, very, very critical, timely um, uh, um, warnings about what lies ahead. We, we need that as a starting point so that communities um, that are in harm's way can do their best uh, to deal with what's coming. Ben, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thank you very much, Simi. That's Ben Parfit, who's a policy analyst at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. So they have a report out this morning, and in it, there is a discussion about a warning that came from a former senior-ranking member of the Provincial Ministry of Environment. The warning that the staffing level at the River Forecast Centre, and this was a warning from 10 years ago, but nothing had changed, that the staffing level at the River Forecast Centre was far below what was seen at similar operations in other places like in Oregon and Alberta, and that they needed to double the number of employees that they had there to provide effective flood risk assessment and early notice to communities that were in harm's way, which we know there's a lot of debate and discussion right now about the, was there an adequate warning to communities in Abbotsford and Princeton and Merritt that this was about to happen to them. And I know the majority of people who live there would probably tell you, no, there was not an adequate warning on that. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we've got our update on what is happening in Abbotsford this morning, but let's talk about some of the other areas that have been severely impacted by the atmospheric rivers. How about Merritt? Now, we know the water levels have stabilized, according to city officials, but they are still very cautious about this third storm and the rain that it is bringing potentially today. So what is going on in Merritt? How are the people doing and what are the plans for dealing with this rain right now? Joining us now is Tony Luck, City Councillor with Merritt. Thank you very much for being here. Well, thank you, Simi. Really appreciate you asking me to come on and give you a bit of an update. Well, I'm very concerned about the community. How how are things right now? What is the situation there? Well, the situation is there. Even uh, the staff and crews have been working very, very hard to bring back our infrastructure. As you know, uh, we lost our sewer treatment plant. We lost our, lost our water system. Uh, and when those go down, we lose our hospital and a number of emergency services and that. So it was, it was, it's been a very stressful couple of weeks. We've got lots of people that would love to come back in the community, but we've had to look on the safety side and make sure everything's safe before they do come back to make sure they've got water and, and sewer systems and the hospital back and running. So it's been very frustrating for a, for a lot of people. And I totally understand that, uh, but we've been working very hard to bring that back as quick as we can. Okay, so then I understand there was a meeting last night. What is the situation right now? Like, who, who is back in their homes and who is still out of their homes? So phase one and two are back in their homes. Uh, phase three is comes back on a on a, on a, on a ad hoc basis in the sense that you come back for between nine and three during the day to do some work. Uh, and then we're going to be looking, uh, here's the good news, is we're looking at opening that phase four piece up so that people can come back and get start doing something. We're looking at Friday as long as the weather cooperates. I, I sure appreciated hearing Mark's uh, weather forecast that it's going to maybe start drying out a little bit here because we sure need a break to be able to get that water, uh, water, the, the water in the river down as quick as we can. 
This must be so hard for residents right now. Just they've been out. Of, it's been almost well, it's in two weeks. Two and a half weeks. It is very hard for some of the residents that uh, they're, uh, you know, and you sympathize with them. They want to get back in. They want to start ripping out the uh, the wet material so mold doesn't uh, start getting into the uh, into the uh, homes. Uh, they want, you know, some of them just want to come back and see what the damage is, or how little, how much damage, and it's it's all over the map. And people are very frustrated, and, and you know, and we we feel we feel for them, but we've had to, there's a number of different agencies involved in this, as you know, in any any emergency like this. And so we've been working with in Interior Health to make sure the water's back up and running right, making this uh, treatment plant all look good for them, because. And, and, and we like said we can't get the hospital back until those are back. And we don't want anybody going in there getting hurt in no uh, hospital facility. So it's, it's been a very trying time for everybody. And I just want to extend appreciation uh, for, the, for their understanding and, and support as we've gone through this. Does the road ahead seem really long right now, Councillor, just given that like, we haven't even really started recovery yet? <laughs> That's right. We're just trying to bring things back so people can get into the homes. We really haven't started recovering We've got a management team in from uh, from the provincial government now helping us. We've been able to get some staff uh, that have been working like 24-7, basically. We're going to pull them back into their office. They can start looking at the, the recovery piece now as we as we move forward, and that's, uh, that's going to be really important. Uh, we've got some promises from the federal and provincial government for some funding, so we'll be working on that to make sure we get that, get that in place so we can you know, make sure we get our infrastructure rebuilt uh, back to where it was uh, as quickly as we can. Uh, so that's going to be the huge challenge there, too. So then with this latest storm, would you say things are holding? You know what? We, when, when that atmospheric river came through the other day, we were within inches of a breach again. But, boy, I, we, were, we got, I guess, prayers were heard or something because the water just come up to the top after all the hard work the military and staff have been doing to rebuild those dikes. It came up and it went right now again. So we're very, very fortunate. Uh, on that one. This one here doesn't look like it's done too much uh, We uh, at the, this point, but it looks like everything that we've put in place is holding for the time being. So uh, we just got our fingers crossed. We get this drying trend uh, happening as quick as we can. All right. We'll keep our fingers crossed for you as well. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Well, thank you very much, Jimmy. Can I just say a thank you to yeah. everybody that's in the city of Merritt that's been working so hard? Uh, you know, sometimes we don't always see what's going on, but boy, behind the scenes, it's just been unbelievable. Thank you to everybody and the donations and everything that are pouring in. So we really, really appreciate it. Like you said, it's a long road ahead, and we appreciate everything we're getting right now. So well, if you. there's anything, you know, you need to get out there, anything you want to talk about, absolutely call us back. Well, that'd be fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your support, Cindy. Anytime. That. that is Tony Luck, who is a city councillor in Merritt, talking about the very long road ahead for that community. Some people back in their homes, not everybody, but not even close to beginning the cleanup yet because they still have a lot of safety concerns about getting the infrastructure back up and running. It's going to be quite a battle there. We'll keep you posted on how that goes. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, I love this next story because it just shows you about the unusual circumstances that so many people find themselves in and the lengths that some people will go to to just be able to help out in any way that they can. This is about two fishing guides uh, with the Fraser Valley Angling Guides Association. They are making news because they rescued one of those amazing monster sturgeons. This was right in the flooded area out in the Fraser Valley there. But here's the thing. These two guides, Tyler Buck and Jay Gibson, they are a little, well, camera shy. They don't really want to talk about themselves. So we're going to let Kevin Estrada do that for them. Kevin is the director of the Fraser Valley Angling Guides Association. Thanks for being back with us, Kevin. 
Thanks for having me again. I love this story, though. This is one of those kind of unique situations, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, it's we kind of expected a little bit. Um, it was it was pretty dramatic with some of the uh, videos that came in with the helicopter pilot that was landing in the area and then saw it stranded. So um, it made for obviously a fairy tale ending with uh, with Jay and and Tyler walking the fish back to the river. So it was, it was pretty cool to watch and see. All right. Let's for people who don't know, Kevin, tell us about Fraser river sturgeon. Well, I mean, there's just so much, right. They're an iconic species in Canada. Um, it's a catch and release only fishery for over 25 years here. And a lot of the volunteers, um, that are either guides, uh, and even some just recreational anglers participate in, um, a tagging program to learn more about the fish, right? So you're tagging the fish, you're taking the length and the girth measurement, and then the, it gives the government a better idea of the health of the population. And um, it's such a special fish that, you know, for us, uh, you know, when something like this is stranded, this, you know, this is our livelihoods as well, right? We, we depend on a healthy ecosystem and, uh, and a sustainable fishery. And so, a fish that survived three ice ages and uh, growed over 200 years old and uh, and are a prehistoric fish, um, you know, these guys didn't take much uh, time to get up to the area and uh, and find this fish and make sure that it was safe. Right. This one needed particular help. What had happened here? Um, so as the water bumped up real fast there when we started, uh, started the floods, it dropped again pretty quickly over the, the next few days. And what happened was it was it was stranded behind Hurling Island. And Hurling is between Agassiz and Hope. And so um, there's lots of work being done on the highway there, as you know, and with the slides. And so the helicopter pilot saw it. We had Jay and Tyler out already through our coordinated effort on many other things we're doing, but uh, we were checking debris. And so we got the call, and uh, they headed up there and, um, uh, and found the fish. And we have side sling cradles, right, for the fish to handle them uh, on our normal day-to-day activities. And so they use that to hike over two kilometers uh, back to the main channel. So a tremendous effort by them. And um, uh, yeah, it was just a, it's a great wow. all-around story. What do you think would have happened if they hadn't done this? Well, I mean, sturgeon are pretty resilient fish, right? I think somebody in the area, because there's so many eyes everywhere, probably would have uh, seen the fish and then there would have been some sort of action plan. But you know, you never wanted to get like that uh, to that point, right? You want to try and find fish, and that's why we've been doing that so often right now with so many of our our members is to try and look for fish stranded because we're going to have that. We already uh, we already know that that's happened in the Sumas Flats as well. So, what do you mean? What is it that you're finding? What's going on? Well, we're looking for fish, right? So, fish have been displaced. We've seen all different species of salmon that are are um, out of canals and areas that they would normally spawn in. They've gone over the main roads. They're into farmers' fields. Uh, there's other sturgeon that have been uh, pushed over when the dike breached. Um, so, we've got an action plan together, and we've got both federal and provincial permits to uh, go and rescue those fish. So, this won't be the first one. Um, you'll hear about it again. Uh, in the coming weeks as the water recedes a little bit. Um, so there'll be more of these stories out there for sure. So, and the thing about sturgeon is, as you mentioned, they're so closely monitored, aren't they? This one in particular had been tagged. Yeah, so this one was tagged and um, and 70% of the population between 60 centimeters and 279 centimeters are tagged. But what's interesting with these fish is that sometimes, you know, you could tag a fish and 
2000 and not see it again until today, right? And so, you know, they do go to the ocean. There are saltwater fish as well. They go into different lakes. Um, and we, you know, to be honest, we we haven't studied them even one life cycle for them, right? We've only been doing it for about 25 years. So it's very interesting to see a lot of the different uh, stats that come back and where they've been and why why did they disappear for so long and uh, it's very interesting. Yeah, it is. Actually, just seeing the picture of this one too, you just go, man, it really is prehistoric to look at. Like, just phenomenal. Well, yeah, and the thing is too, right? People fly from around the world to come here, right? And so, you know, one of the things that, that's been just so, um, it's made me so proud of the guys and all the work that we've done over the last couple of weeks is that, you know, we've been hit so hard with tourism over the last couple of years, right? And and to have all these people still going out and volunteering to do all these good acts of kindness and uh, and and then this fish, you know, to save this fish is like, uh, you know, it's a cherry on top of the cake for sure. Oh, it's so that was such a good story. I wanted to make sure we talked about it. But Kevin, looking ahead to what needs to be done, does it seem like there's a lot of work to make sure that, you know, we, we take care of the fish? Yeah, for sure. There's there always has been, right? I mean, it's it's a, a species of concern. It's a slow growth species, and um, and you know it, it, they're not spawning till over 25, and then they spawn every three to six years, depending on water conditions. So, you know, you have to monitor them for a long time to see really what's going on. And the Fraser Valley Angling Guides Association has the priority project in the province right now through um, HCTF, the Habitat Trust Conservation Foundation, to study juvenile sturgeon. Um, to find out where we are uh, with population estimate for the young ones. All right. Well, thank you so much for telling us about the story today. Thanks again for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. Ten dollar first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable. Bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com/sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call one eight hundred Gambler. How concerned should we all be about the Omicron variant of COVID-19? How concerned are health officials in this province? Well, that's what we're going to talk a bit more about right now. Joining us now is Adrian Dix, Provincial Health Minister. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Are you worried about Omicron? Uh, I'm worried about everything. And yes, we worry about Omicron. One of the reasons why the measures are being taken that have been taken by the federal government principally is the precautionary principle. We don't know yet. We don't know really 
the level of transmissibility of Omicron or the level of seriousness if people get sicker uh, with the Omicron variant. And we'll know that. We'll have a better assessment of that in the next 10 days to two weeks. In the meantime, uh, flights in or people traveling from 10 countries, have that's been prohibited. And everyone's going to require a, a PCR test when they arrive. Uh, that that process will be done by the government of Canada. So those changes have been put in place so that we um, so that we uh, you know are cautious in this period. And in the meantime, we continue with our immunizations of children five to eleven for the booster doses and all the other public health measures, some of which were announced yesterday. Right, and you said look, it's about ten days before we'll know more, I guess. But why not speed things up a little when it comes to those booster shots and vaccination campaign? Well, we are. Um, six months ago, exactly, June 1st, we've done about 191,000 second doses. This is six months later, we've done about 400, four, more than 419,000 uh, uh, booster doses. So we're ahead of schedule. What will happen in the next two months is because a lot of our second doses took place, as you'll remember, in June, July, and mm-hmm. the first half of August, we're going to see more of those booster doses come into play. And what we're doing is working with our pharmacy sector. So about 200 Pharmacies were part of uh, the initial pilot projects, and they're available now to start delivering uh, booster shots of COVID-19 vaccines to adults, so those 12 and above. And then uh, we're adding pharmacies, so that'll be 500 by the end of the month and 1,000 in January as that number builds up. So uh, booster shots are a high priority. We laid out a full plan for them based on the science and based on the real-world evidence that's been uh, put in place in BC, by, led by Dr. Denitis Karantz. Skaronsky, and um, and uh, I think we're on track on booster shots. And my message to everyone is when you get invited for your booster shot, to go get your booster shot. So do you feel that because a lot of us got our shots in June and July and August, that we're still within that kind of six-month zone? We are. And, uh, for example, uh, I got my second dose in the middle of July. So the six- to eight-month thing would put me between July and March for my booster shot, and that's when I'll be getting my... Okay, so are you able to go back and check and see if we know that in the last few weeks people arrived from some of these countries that we're concerned about? Can we go back and ask them and test them and see if there's a problem? That's what we've done in in almost all cases. In the in the period in question, about 204 people had arrived in BC from those countries. There aren't direct flights from those countries uh, in general uh, at all, but they, people do come obviously via other airports. So the federal government identified 204 people and done just that. Are you comfortable with the steps the federal government has taken up until now? Yes, but the, you know, the ch- it is challenging as we've seen in the past uh, at airports to put in place uh, testing systems to make sure everybody's tested and make sure that, uh, that people wait and stay isolated during that period. And that will be, that's a big task. The federal government had told us yesterday, I met with the federal health minister, Mr. Duclos, yesterday, and my, my fellow provincial ministers, and they seem confident they're going to be able to do it. I think it'll take a number of days. So I am, I think it's the right step right now to be cautious. We won't know, as I say, all the evidence around uh, Omicron, but we do know that there are going to be more variants of concern, that what variants of concern are is the virus mutating. We've seen it before. It continues to do so. It does so more slowly than, say, the influenza virus, and that's why we need new influenza vaccines every year. Uh, but it does uh, mutate, and you have, and we have to be uh, continuing to adjust and adapt to deal with that. Do you foresee anything changing then in the next few weeks when it comes to restrictions? 
Well, we saw some change yesterday. So uh, yesterday, for example, there's a, a mass mandate for uh, religious gatherings. Uh, and this is obviously a busy se- season for uh, religious gatherings. There are more people, uh, for example, in Christian churches in December than any other month of the year. So uh, there's a mass mandate in place and other measures to address that, to essentially bring those gatherings up to a similar level of protection to other gatherings. So um, those adjustments are made. We made some adjustments in the interior yesterday to um, to make the interior restrictions now more like the rest of the province because test positivity has come down in the interior. I'd say there is a piece of good news, Simi, because mm-hmm. we often talk about uh, bad news. Yeah. There's only two long-term care outbreaks now in BC, only two. Uh, one is at George Derby and the other is in Port St. John at Peace Villa. A month ago, there were 20. And so you see the impact of the mandatory vaccination order for healthcare workers. You see the impact of booster shots there in long-term care. And um, and obviously, uh, but that's good news. Uh, two in long-term care, one in uh, assisted living in the entire province. And uh, that reflects, I think, uh, all the efforts everybody are making, not what the government's doing or anything else, but what everyone's doing. So what would you like people to keep in mind? Like, I get the, all the emails from people, and I'm sure you do too. There's a lot of concern with Omicron in the news. You're saying it might be 10 days before we find out more. What would you like people to keep in mind during that time? The, the, we're taking action now that we have the strongest system to detect variants of concern in BC of just about anywhere. That, that's, that, uh, that capacity was built up a year ago and that what they need to continue, continue to do and what we all need to continue to do is get vaccinated for our first, second, or booster doses when we're invited to. In the case of first doses, that's now for anyone over 12 who hasn't been vaccinated. And that we need to continue to follow public health restrictions where they exist and guidance. So we need to continue to wash our hands. We need to continue to be cautious um, uh, in, uh, in indoor public spaces. We need to continue to wear our masks in those circumstances because uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is still with us. And uh, we, we want to be able to celebrate the holiday season, to celebrate Christmas, to celebrate Hanukkah, to celebrate other uh, religious holidays and, uh, and this period, which is important in my church and lots of other places. But we need to do so safely and, uh, and take care of one another. And I think people in BC have been doing a good job of that. we just got to continue to do that. All right, Minister Dix, thank you for your time today. Hey, thank you, Simi. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Canada is restricting travel from three more African countries and seeking more guidance on the COVID-19 booster program in the country amid the emergence of this Omicron variant. We spoke to Health Minister Adrian Dix about half an hour ago where he's saying, yes, they're in discussions, talking to the federal government. They're going back and checking people who have arrived uh, from this list of foreign countries to see if they can be tested and find out more about Omicron. But essentially, we're waiting for more information. So we know that foreign nationals from Nigeria, Malawi and Egypt If they've been to those countries over the past two weeks, they won't be able to enter Canada, along with the seven other countries they had already listed last Friday. So should we be concerned about this? We know Dr. Bonnie Henry said yesterday, listen, reconsider travel plans if you have them over the holidays. Let's talk to Claire Newell, our Global BC travel expert and, of course, head of Travel Best Bets. Good morning, Claire. Good morning, Simi. Another curveball for the travel industry. I was just saying, you have that tone in your voice, and I feel like... (laughs) I do. You've probably seen it all over the last two years, but what kind of an impact are these latest announcements having? 
Um, most people are in a bit of a wait and see if they've got travel plans on the books. There are people who are concerned, though, and are starting to call in and asking if they should cancel, what they should do. Uh, it is a tough situation, and I, I expected this, though, Simi. I knew that the goalposts would continue to change. There, there would be variants and that there would be things that happen. And now travel restrictions by country are changing, and, and they're changing really quickly. We know now that every Canadian coming back into Canada from anywhere except from the U.S. will have to actually have another PCR test when they land. So in a, this is in addition to the one that they have to do before they get on board an aircraft. And it, in fact, I'm, I'm traveling this weekend. My husband is traveling somewhere else this weekend. We are going to and from the U.S., so we won't need that second PCR test because it, it's been, we've been told it will come within days. But my daughter is coming back. Um, she's in the States now, but she's heading to Mexico before heading back to Vancouver. Lucky her. But she does, I had to say to her, listen, honey, you're likely going to have to do another PCR test at YVR once you land. They are set up for this. If you've been to YVR, you'll know this, but there is uh, an area where PCR testing is set up. It's basically where you would normally exit the the airport um, before the double doors open and you would meet somebody. Mm-hmm. And so that will likely add some time to your return. And then you will need to quarantine until you get that test result back negative. So... Is that everybody, though, Claire, that has to do that? Or is that, like, I know that happens randomly now when you come back. Yes. About 1 in 15, 1 in 20 people are being randomly tested. But from anywhere except the U.S., you will need to be doing that. And that's in the coming days. Obviously, the federal government has to work with YVR and and all of the other airports that are accepting international flights across this country. And as of um, November 30th, that's a whole lot more. There's now 18 Uh, airports that will be, you know, allowing international flights. So as you were saying, though, again, though, that is if you're coming from anywhere but the U.S. Correct. So like my daughter, she's coming from Mexico on December 18th, and she'll likely have to do this. Okay, because that's the thing. We just feels like we just open things back up again. And there's new rules for people. It does seem like though, Claire, like if people are planning to go just to the U.S., things are still the same. Yes, but for how long, I'm not sure. So it's, you really have to be prepared for things to change. And you know that, that test and waiting for that, even though it's only 24, 36 hours approximately for the get, to get those results back. If you're coming and you're supposed to go to work, that, that could pose a problem for you. But no matter what you're doing, make sure that you book with a company that has flexible terms and conditions. If things change and you can't go or you decide not to go and make sure you've got travel insurance that can ha- at least help protect you from the non-refundable portion or COVID-19 if, if you are traveling. Right. It does seem that there is a commitment, though, that it, for the Canada side of this and the United States side of this, that, that relationship still seems like they're on track to keep doing what they're doing. Yeah. It does. You know, they didn't put any changes in place for the land border in which you don't need to have a test to go down and you don't need to have a test to come back. Keeping in mind, though, a lot of people have been caught and turned back if they didn't fill out their Arrive Can app. Oh, I've been Even hearing if they're just about crossing this. for a couple of hours. Yeah. So make sure you do that as well because you don't want to be turned around and go fill out that p- paperwork or that, that app and then come back. So um, they have not made any changes to that. But again, this is moving goalposts and things could change at any time, Simi. Okay. Do you think people have learned that, Claire? Like you said, you're getting some phone calls. Have people learned about the, okay, I no. have to get insurance? <laughs> 
No, they no, they haven't. I feel like I have to be reminding people all of the time that um, whether you're making a booking, you have an existing booking, that you, you just need to make sure that they have those flexible terms and conditions. And reminding people about the travel insurance, they're like, oh, geez, you know, it's a it's an added expense. I'm like. You have to have it these days for protection against COVID-19 and your valuable travel right. investment if you've got non-refundable portions. So, and, and to be kind of prepared in case something happens while yeah. you're away. I mean, I'm mentally preparing myself, even though I'm just going to the U.S. for a few days leaving tomorrow. I'm still... I'm wow. ready to have to have that PCR test upon landing if it if it's put in place. Right. So that's that's kind of where we are at with these things. Did you feel, though, that had people started booking again? Had the travel industry started to see some interest? Oh, my goodness. I mean, we could barely keep up. We were, you know, we were inundated with quotes, people working overtime, you know, for the first time in a very long time over the past probably eight weeks. And so, yeah, I felt like we've kind of had two steps forward and now uh, you know, another step back. Um, but there is light. It's a, a lot more um, hopeful than it's been in the past. I, I, my fingers are crossed that the, the vaccines cover us all from Omicron. And if they don't, that the boosters will. That's what it seems like everybody is hoping for on that one. So, okay, then just a little, just one more time then here, Claire, for people who are thinking about traveling, who do these rules impact right now? Right now, uh, they will be impacting anybody who is going to uh, or has trips on the books for places that may have closed their borders. Just to mention a few, Japan, Israel. Uh, the UK has put in a, a mandatory self-quarantine for all travelers due to the new Omicron virus, uh, variant. So just like here in Canada, you'll have to take a PCR test. The only difference is you actually have to pay for that. And it has to be done within two days of your arrival and you self-quarantine until you get that uh, negative result. For anyone who's going outside of Canada to anywhere other than the US, when you're returning back to Canada, you are going to need to have a PCR test um, once you land, in addition to those tests while you're uh, before you board. So lots of things changing. Uh, keep keep uh, the IATA.org slash destination tracker handy on your on your phone and um, because it's literally changing by the day at the moment. OK, good advice as always. Thank you for that, Claire. <laughs> Thanks, Timmy. Claire Newell, Global BC travel expert, of course, president of Travel Best Bets. And she mentioned something really important there. And that is, I've, I was seeing this too online, people saying they were going down to get gas and groceries or whatever the case, just for a quick trip down to the border because you don't need to be have that test when you come back. But you do still need to have the Arrive Can app and fill out that form. People are being turned away and told to go back. They can't enter Canada until they have that form. It's pretty easy download the app, you fill out the form, and then everything is in order. But that seems to be something that has been overlooked in all of this too. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone. And for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.